0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Talent Factor podcast. My name is Trey Tally, the L and D dude.
1: And I'm Veronica Reed, the HR millennial, and we want to help you multiply your impact by maximizing your talent.
0: Well, today in studio, we have a young man, Bob Britton. You're too kind. Oh, yes. (laughs) Uh, Some of you may know him as Thor, but that's a longer story than we have time for in the podcast. Uh, Bob, thank you for joining Veronica and I on the Talent Factor podcast. My pleasure. Well, we are here today to talk about training, sales. Uh, Some of us know it as sales enablement. Uh, It goes by a lot of different names. It sure does. It also looks a lot different wherever you do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so let's kind of start with uh, defining sales. So, uh, or maybe with with you, what drew you to sales? Uh, Necessity, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I love the honesty in that answer. Uh,
2: No, So really what happened with, with my introduction to formal sales, I mean, I was raised in the hospitality industry, which is very much dealing with the public. And so in the hospitality industry, when you're in a restaurant, you're doing sales, especially if you're a table jockey, like, like I was for years, right? Um, but uh, formal sales, I got into it actually through the military, believe it or not. Cool. And so uh, I started off my military career as an avionics guy. So lots of technology, lots of working on um, H-60 Bravo helicopters, which are sub-hunting helicopters, did all the avionics for those things, Really, really a great time. Um, then the second half of my Navy career, they decided to put me in charge of recruiting for the state of Vermont. So, uh, so what wound up happening was I had uh, three recruiting stations under me, um, and uh, uh, off and on about twelve different recruiters, and so I was essentially a sales manager. That's that's how I got into it, and you, you learn a lot about um, sales when you're selling something like the Navy. So,
0: <laughs> absolutely, you know, it's it's kind of that. Um, I think it's a consistent refrain from people who are in L&D that sometimes we took very roundabout ways to get into that. So, mm-hmm. you know, Navy, avionics, sales, sales enablement, that's a, that's a pretty roundabout way to get there.
2: Yeah, I don't think anybody actually dives into sales enablement as a career. I think they just kind of fall into it.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Well, uh, you talked about how, you know, you were drawn into sales. Let's talk about sales in general.
1: So how do you define sales?
2: Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. It's one of the things that a lot of people don't agree on a lot of the time. Um, It used to be much simpler than it is today, sales. Um, A lot of people will think of sales as um, revenue generation, but they're actually two different things, right? Um, There's sales, which I define as kind of involves the human-to-human interaction. And then there's revenue generation, which at times doesn't even require a human being in the loop. Uh, so, you know, revenue, revenue generation can be done through marketing. For example, Dell wrote the book on that. You don't even have to have a human being involved to purchase your Dell system. Okay. Now, is that sales? Well, what happened with me was, you know, as an example, uh, when I purchased a couple of Dell monitors, uh, I did what everybody else does. You look through. You find what you need. You got a budget in mind. You, you, you hit enter. You swipe your card. And two days later, the, uh, the, the product shows up on your doorstep. No human beings involved whatsoever. But what's interesting is about actually I timed it. Seven minutes after I hit enter and gave him my credit card, I get an email that says, "Hi, my name is Kumar. I'm your sales rep." So I'm like, "Time out. You know who, who are you? I I don't even know you. Why are you calling yourself my sales rep when you didn't even speak to me whatsoever until just now after I've already made the transaction?" You know so. What, what is considered sales, sales is evolving, I guess is the best way to put it, and how people define it is also evolving.
0: So is there an aspect of sales that really gets you jazzed? You, know, you kind of talked about the revenue generation, the human-to-human interaction part of sales. Mm-hmm. Is there a part that really gets Bob Britton jazzed?
2: Yeah, it's, 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 it's this interesting concept that I don't think anybody gets into sales or any profession for that matter to fail. But what winds up happening is um, you know, a, a many, many different people in sales struggle, and they're not getting a whole lot of development to help them get over those hurdles. So one of the things that I'm passionate about is really helping salespeople who want to perform, which are most of them, to help them perform, because clearly they're not getting what it is that they need in order to do better.
0: Yep. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So just to kind of keep that same thought going, is the ability to sell important to people outside of a formal sales role?
2: Oh, gosh, yeah. I, I mean, it, every one of us sells something. You know, if you're married, you're trying to sell your significant other on going to the restaurant that you want to go to. <laughs> 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 you know, so it, it's, yeah, sales is is not... Um, as scary or as, you know, um, evil a profession as, as some people might think. It's interesting. You look at some of the uh, surveys that are taken out there, and sales oftentimes ranks right down there with politicians and journalists. Uh, you know, so, but, the, but the fact is we're all selling regardless of what it is that we're doing. You know, when we're dating, you know, what are you doing? You're selling yourself. So, it, you know, if, if you have to understand what sales is. And if you can take that same concept of how you interact with people, on a one-to-one basis and bring that into the business world, you're much more likely to succeed than if you follow some sort of a formulaic approach to selling.
0: Wow. So I, by that definition, I got to tell you, I'm a pretty doggone good salesman because if <clears throat> you've ever seen or met my wife, the fact that I sold her on me is a miracle <laughs> and a testament, I guess, to my sales ability, right? Uh-huh. So we, you know, so what do you, what do you teach? So if you want, again, they want to be really, they want to be successful getting into like what you teach someone who who really wants to succeed in sales are there skills or knowledge for sales that are maybe the same across industries and if so what do you what would you consider like the sales essentials
2: sure so where sales is concerned there is uh, sort sort of a Kabuki dance that you go through in sales. Okay, um, I'm gonna have to Google that term uh, after this. Kabuki, by the way, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it, it, what it is is that there certainly is a process to sales in the business world. I mean, business is governed and and run by process, and you have to understand how it fits into uh, the interaction between a company and the and the buyer. And to do that, the first thing that a salesperson needs to understand is the basic. Um, the basic structure of how all that looks, and and really you look at any methodology that's out there, whether it's Challenger, Solution Selling, or Spin, or you name it, there's some sort of a process, and most of them are like 90, 95 percent the same, honestly, and and the, because there, there's just a, a way to do it. So what winds up happening is, as a person is learning to sell, they'll go through that methodology, whatever it is that the company has, and they'll learn how to do it. Now, the interesting thing about methodologies is it's also the way that a company can scale their sales. If you have a sales force of three or four people, it's easy, like us sitting around here right now, to have a discussion and come to an agreement. But if you get a sales force of 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 people sitting around, it starts to sound like the Tower of Babel.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay? Yep.
2: So what? So a sales methodology helps people uh, understand a common language that people can use within the organization to say, this is kind of where we are in our language as far as you know, the sales processes and how we're doing. So you have to learn that. After you get through that and you un- and you get get through the basics, once you take the training wheels off, then it's a matter of, How do you actually interact with the person that's in front of you? And the difference between a good seller and an okay seller or a really great seller is how well they can actually interact with this person in front of them because every person in front of you is not going to fit that model that you were given. Matter of fact, very, very, very few do. So you have to be able to dance to the tune that the customer is playing. And what you also have to understand is the person has a need that need that you need to get to. If all you're doing is following a sheet and asking questions off of a sheet, and, and and waiting for the answer, that means that you're not even listening to the customer. You have an agenda in your head and you're just trying to get through the process. Good salespeople involve not only active listening, but empathic listening and let the customer take the lead.
0: Wow, that's good. I mean, you said empathic, that empathy is a huge word right now. You know, in the business world is, more people are talking about the importance of emotional intelligence, uh, skills that are, you know, considered, quote-unquote, soft skills. Mm-hmm. Empathy has risen to the top, that ability to do that. So how, how valuable is empathy in the process of sales, and how and how does it play out?
2: Again, it comes down to the human-to-human interaction thing. Um, from, you know, how do I phrase this? When, when you're looking at um, a product that you're trying to sell, what people will do is they'll take a very clinical, uh, almost logical Approach to selling it. The problem is that people do not purchase based upon logic. People purchase based upon emotion, and they support it with the logic. Um, Phineas Gage. I don't know if you're familiar with with, with his story. Uh, he's he's a guy from turn of the century kind of kind of guy, and uh, he was actually one of the first case studies, I guess, of um, how it is that people make decisions. And he got this rod that went through his head, believe it or not, and he survived. And and so what went up happening was it went through the part of his brain that was his emotional part. And what happened was he could understand logic left and right, no problem. When it came a time to say, which one do you want to make a decision, he couldn't do it. So what wound up happening, you know, we, we, we wound up understanding now that making a decision is emotional. All the logic that goes around it supports that. So if you understand that sales and the decision to sign on the bottom line or to to make a decision to go with product A over product B is really emotional, it kind of really changes the paradigm as to how it is that you should be selling. So understanding how to um, e- get the EQ, we call it EQ, uh, which is the emotional quotient in, into the sales, right? So if you can figure out how to get the EQ into it, as well as the IQ, which is all the logic and rationality, and you combine the two, you're going to fly as a seller. But if all you do is you rely upon the product and the IQ to sell, you're you're going to struggle. Wow, that's good. So
1: just to kind of switch tones a little bit, because I know we spoke on empathy so moving on to motivation, so coming from an HR standpoint, a lot of people in sales, we know they're very, you you got to measure, like it's measurement. We have to have this outcome. Like if you don't meet these certain quotas, we're going to let you go. Mm-hmm. So when you're teaching, how do you motivate those sales employees to make sure that they still do the best they can, even though there's a lot of pressure for them to hit those numbers?
2: Yeah, they're, they're two different things there, aren't they? Hitting the numbers and motivation are two different things. Right. Uh, so... When it comes to motivation, there are some really bad assumptions that are made in the world of sales. Uh, One of the primary ones being, for example, that uh, all salespeople are what are called coin-operated. Give them more money and they're going to perform better. Nothing could be further from the truth. You look at uh, some of the research that's done out there, um, you know, Dan Pink is pretty familiar. The book Drive, uh, it, it, I love that yeah. book. Yeah, so uh, the ones that he focuses on are purpose, autonomy, and mastery. You know, so for a person to be motivated, they have to have a purpose, they have to have some sense of autonomy, and they want to be, be masters of something. But very few organizations really take a look at how to set up an environment where those three things are even capable of being attained. So from from Dan Pink's standpoint, if you just if he, that's that's the very basic one. If you just set those three things up, you're going to be far ahead of the game. There are other folks out there like Gostick and Elton who have done some research on the, a book out there I think called "Motivate Me" or, or "What Motivates Me" or something along those lines, and um, they actually broke it down into twenty-seven different uh, motivational aspects. And if you go through a motivational assessment with them, it'll break it down. And statistically, when you look at what it is they put out for, for their research, one in every 100,000 people has the same top seven motivators. So... The odds of you sitting next to somebody that has the same things that motivate you are slim to none. <laughs> so, yeah. it, you know, it 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 really is you know fascinating when you start to take a look at what it is that drives people to behave the way that they do. Now, here's the other thing about about motivation that's important. You cannot motivate a person. That's like saying a carrot and a stick are the way to actually get somebody to do something. It doesn't really work that way, or at least not in the long term. You get it in the short term, and not the long term. What you have to do is you have to enable the person, set up the environment so that the person can actually self-motivate.
0: Yeah. It's that difference between extrinsic motivation, mm-hmm. something like a quota or a bonus, and that intrinsic motivation, which is providing them the ability to be a bit autonomous or have some mastery. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. So, you know, it comes to uh, salesmen. A lot of people already have a picture in mind right? They've experienced a salesman. They think all salesmen are cut from the same cloth. Um, You know, do you think that there is, you know, one mold for all sales professional that they should conform to, or can successful sales professionals be very unique from one another?
2: Absolutely unique. I, I have met salespeople that are as cantankerous and uh, caustic and acidic as you can imagine and they fly because of the type of people that they're dealing with I've also met people that are as empathic and warm and loving and hugging and they fly but if you, t- if you took that same warm empathic person and put him in front of the, the type of people that this other guy was dealing with it wouldn't, wouldn't work it, you know, so it really is trying to find the right person matches up with the right type of client and that's, that's a huge thing that a lot of organizations again don't do they don't think about, okay, what type of client is this person going to deal with? You can see that clearly, especially when organizations uh, base their sales around territory. They expect one salespeople to be able to deal with every single type of personality that's in their territory. It doesn't work that way. Sales is a team sport. you got to sort of get, you know back off on the territory a little bit. I understand you got to have that to some degree, but really what you're looking for is does the, does the seller resonate with the buyer? And so if you can get to that point and understand that, again, you're going to be much better off. That's fantastic. Yeah, I love I kinda that. I kind of
1: like that because you, um, in a lot of organizations that I've worked for that have a sales force, they do just have one person for each territory. And like you said, that doesn't, they're not effective. Like you should make it more of a team environment. So if you know that's one person is a little bit more hard to deal with you know it should be more of a tag team effort instead of one person has to cover this whole territory the whole time so that's pretty good Mm -hmm. so for anybody out there in organizations you should definitely look into that for your organization
0: for sure do you think that's a great place where personality assessments come into play understanding your own personality so that you can understand the the clients and customers that you're going to connect with or the challenges you'll face in connecting with people whose personality is different?
2: Yeah, I think personality assessments are important. I think that competency assessments are important. Um, they have to be psychometric, though, in the sense that they're a little predictive. Um, also, uh, w- what's interesting about this is most organizations don't do this with their sales force. They, it's, if, if you don't understand where the strengths and weaknesses of your sales force are, it's sort of like sitting down to play poker without ever looking at the hands that you were dealt. So you, uh, uh, you can do it, but you're going to be bluffing like crazy yep. in, in order to get the other person to, <laughs> to actually fold or, or anything up. But um, the, the important thing is, you know, when it comes to these assessments that you're doing, you've got to look at them in, in, in whole. you gotta, you got to combine them, and you can't look at just one. And the other thing is most organizations, especially at the leadership level, they'll take these things and they say, ah, that's a soft skill. And they wind, they wind up taking these assessments and it winds up going on either a filing cabinet never to be seen again or it goes right in the circular file. One of the two because they say, ah, I don't care about that because I got numbers to hit. So, you know, if they would take the time to really understand the people underneath them that, that are selling for them and, and, and create an environment where they can grow and you actually take the time to grow them, uh, you're, you're going to be far better off because every time that a person leaves, if a person isn't performing well as a seller, the knee-jerk reaction is to replace them. But the issue is every time that a person leaves, part of your culture leaves. So if you have this revolving door of sellers, you're never going to get a sales culture going, never. And So what you need to understand is, who is it that said it? Um, that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I can't remember who it is. Uh, Pete Drucker. Pete Drucker said that. You know, so, um, you know, it, culture is absolutely critical in the performance of a company. That's, so. that's awesome.
1: So is there any content that you typically see in sales training that you think this is so ineffective or just outdated, and I wish that they would stop using it?
2: Yeah, it's kind of a personal thing, but yeah, I do, I, I, I do <laughs> see some stuff out there. Um, one of the, One of the things that drives me nuts is most every sales methodology that's taught out there right now, has to do with what's the customer's pain, mm. okay? And the, the, here's the problem with pain. Um, when do you ever see, for example, your dentist outside the dentist's office when you're in pain? Never? Okay. Not too often. So, so what winds up happening is you, you associate the salesperson that's coming into your office as nothing but a painkiller. And so you're never going to go back to them unless you're in pain. What you really want to do is you want to be able to help this customer get to where it is that they want to be, which means you want to help advise them. You want to help their organization grow. But again, if all you do is present yourself as a painkiller or worse, some, some sales methodologies actually teach you to be both an arsonist and a firefighter at the same time. They say if, you don't have a, if, if the customer doesn't have a pain, point out to the fact that they do have a pain or poke them until they do. And then say, here's the solution. Here's the solution that I have for you that will actually cure the pain I just gave you. You know, So that's the kind of thing that drives me insane. It, it, it's To me, personally, it's a little unethical. But it's also, um, it, it will get you short-term monetary gain. But it's not going to get you the long-term relationship
0: that you actually want to have with people. Well, I would definitely distance myself if my dentist... Would cause pain to me if I didn't have any, and then offer the solution, <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, "Sorry, dude, I'm finding another dentist, or I'm just gonna brush my teeth seven times a day, so I never have to come see you again." Right. Well, one of the things we love to do, and I'm so excited to do this with you because you are such a playful dude. Um, y- y- I feel like you and I need to have coffee once a week. Like, <laughs> right? We're. And so I'm excited. We like to, to play a game mm-hmm. uh, with our folks, and so playful people are fun to play with. So you guys will get to know a little bit about Bob as a person, too, as you hear him. So we're going to play a little game. It's a scary proposition. It, it is. <laughs> this is why we edit after the fact, uh, mostly because of me, not because of you. Because <laughs> Veronica's like, yeah, don't say that, Trey. We can edit it out. Perfect. <laughs> so we're going to play a game called How Would You Sell This? And we're going to give you a couple of things uh, to sell. And then tell us how you might approach selling this thing. Now, these aren't ordinary things. Some of them are hard sells. Some of the things that you would never sell, but I think it'll be fun. Are you ready? Oh God. Okay. Let's, <laughs> let's see what happens. <laughs> All right. Uh, Veronica, why don't you give him, the, give him the first one?
1: Okay. So how would you sell water to a fish?
2: Um, so How's that water taste right now that you're actually drinking, Mr. Fish? Are you happy with the water that you're drinking? You know, know, I know that you need it. The question is, do you want it or do you want to try something better?
0: Ooh, you're swimming in water right now, but can I offer you better water to swim in? I love that. Okay, here's the next one. I like this one. Um, How would you sell a tattoo to a grandma? (laughs)
2: <laughs> um, hey, Grandma, do you want to be a little more with the times?
0: You <laughs> do, do, do you want to gain the respect of your grandkids? Ooh that's, Ooh, that's a good one. Look at that. And that's not a pain point, right? That's a success. You're leading. That's the whole point. You know, h- how do you improve somebody's life? That's what I'm lo- looking to do. That's fantastic. Man, I'm going to get a tattoo after this just from his answer to that.
1: <laughs> um, maybe you should... Consult with your wife first, maybe. we'll, I we'll see. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So how would you sell an electric car, let's say a Prius, to a truck driving Texan? So someone that has like the F-250 with the big wheels. How would you sell a Toyota Prius to them? I wouldn't. <laughs> 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 oh.
2: even try. <laughs> like, That's good. <laughs> Sometimes you got to know when to sell and when not to right. sell, so <laughs> <laughs> I that, wouldn't. <laughs> that is awesome.
0: Okay, so how would you sell a disco ball to a convent of nuns?
2: Oh, gosh. Um... imagine the disco—the lights that a disco baller that are putting out aren't just lights, they're the stars in the heavens.
0: And you could actually pray to those, to those stars in the heavens.
1: Oh, that's really good.
0: Man, I'm going to go home with a tattoo and a disco ball today.
1: <laughs> that's really good. Okay, and so last one. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> this one is actually relevant to today's topic. How would you sell a more robust or redesigned sales training to a reluctant executive?
2: Yeah, I, I I really want them to understand. Uh, this is a serious question, all right. Okay, yeah. okay, okay yes. fine. Um, so I'd, I'd really want to help them understand that um, you don't need to necessarily struggle. But if if they're going to, it, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and getting you know, expecting different results, but always getting the same, right? So one of the things you have to do with organizations is help them understand that if you're going to change gears from second to third, we're going back to the old days when you had a clutch, right? So if you're going changing gears from second to third, you're pressing on the clutch, what happens to the the car? It slows down just a hair, okay? And then you re-engage with third gear and things fly. Well, most organizations don't have the patience to allow that clutch push, slow down, change gear, and then accelerate because they're so focused on the quarter-to-quarter quarter performance. So what you have to do is help them understand that this is really going to get you further if you're going to be changing gears here, and this is what this is, a gear change. You can't just step on the gas in second gear and expect to go 100 miles an hour. You know, and that's what everybody tries to do. So that's, that's kind of how I would start to explain
0: it to them. That's awesome. You know, it's the difference between do you want to go far or do you want to go fast? Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay, well, let, let's jump into, you know, we talked about, you know, what sales is, what it requires of somebody doing it, if you're going to teach it to them, what do you need to teach them? And then you get into the methodology of, of how to teach it, right? So in what ways <clears throat> is training sales unique from training other roles in an organization?
2: Um, there's a lot more autonomy involved in, in, in sales. When a salesperson is in front of a, um, a, a client, it really is very much them. They, they they have to perform. It's not like they have a support group around them. It's a one to one conversation at that point in time. Um, there's a lot. You really had to build up a person's confidence uh, when when you're talking about sales. Uh, you also have to help them understand that um, there is a human being <laughs> you know in, in front of them, not just a target to go after that you're going to be selling something to. So uh, you know the the point is that when it comes to to doing sales training compared to other types of training. Like when you look at uh, the competencies involved, for example. Uh, you look at a corn Ferry list of competencies, like 60-odd of them. Um, we actually once tried to correlate the 60-odd corn Ferry competencies to uh, the 27 or 28 different competencies of this one particular um, uh, performance evaluation we're using. We could only find four of them that matched. Wow. So, what winds up happening is now the competencies that are involved in sales as compared to typical uh, organizational operations are really different. Um, So, when you take sales and you try to approach it from a purely HR perspective, it doesn't always work unless you have somebody in the HR group that has been a seller and kind of understands the nuances. Um, so it's important that you also take a look at where, um, the selling is starting or the training is starting from when it comes to your sales organization and make sure that, uh, you're gearing it toward the competencies that are, that a seller is going to use as compared to what your typical internal employee is going to use.
0: Nice.
1: Very nice. So when you are, you know, kind of gathering training together and creating a plan, do you feel, how long do you think a sales training should last? Because some organizations might do a couple of days, some might do a week. What do you feel is the sweet spot of how long this training should be?
2: Well, there's two different thoughts there, right? The first one is when you're onboarding somebody, uh, you knock it all out in whatever it is that, the, that they have the money for, really, I guess. You know, is, is it going to be uh, a couple of weeks? Is it going to be three months? Is it going to be six months? And then you set them off into the field. Or do you take a different approach where it's really an extended uh, kind of teach and drift, teach and drift, where you uh, onboard them for two or three weeks, put them into the field, come back for another round of onboarding, put them into the field, that type of thing. I think you're going to find better results if you do that second method as compared to cramming it all into one because the forgetting for curve comes into play when you're when you're doing the first one. Uh, the second one actually gives them a chance to use it, operationalize it, build it into their into their fabric, and then they can come back and learn a little bit more. So my personal preference is to take somebody and onboard them over the, over the course of, let's say, 12 months to, to 18 months um, and over time uh, with short goals and then keep on stretching that goal as they go along as compared to just bringing everybody together and doing this data dump on them and uh, hoping that they can retain as much of it as possible
0: yeah yeah it's interesting as i was walking through my masters of education one of the things that all the research was showing is that sometimes the way we do learning is backwards we teach them the information and then put them in the field right we're like we're going to give you all the information you need now go use it when the most effective is to put them in the field doing the thing that they're doing and then bring them back <clears> and teach it because then you have an experience or the word that we use in L&D is a schema, right? They have mm-hmm. something to hook it onto as opposed to you're just talking theoretical and then maybe you see applications when you go out there. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I love about that second approach you mentioned over the 12 is this teach and drift, teach and drift. It's give them some information, let them use it, teach them again, let them use it. What methods would you use for that that longer process? Because, you know, an a instructor-led trainer, classroom for, you know, eight hours is kind of the bring them in, cram them in, send them out kind of deal. What would you use? Would it be phone calls, webinars, coaching? Would you use e-learning modules? What what would that look like?
2: All of the above, but the most important one honestly has to do with the coaching. Because a lot of people, when they look at training, they say, how many times have we heard this? Let training fix it. <laughs> you know, so the, the problem is that, uh, it's not so much that the person doesn't know what to do. It's not that they're not, they're not doing what it is that they already know how to do. Um, so with, with that philosophy, you, you, what you have to understand is in, training is about getting information into people's heads, and coaching is about getting that same information out of their heads and operationalizing it. So if you don't have the two together, all the information does is stick in somebody's head and then whittle away. But if you're coaching properly, you're taking the information that was just put inside there and helping them apply it in a day-to-day operation. So, it, it, if if you can get to that point where you have a good coaching structure in the organization, whether it's in sales or any place else, and you're helping them to uh, to to really understand what it is that they do, how it changes the organization, how it improves different people, the effectiveness of it, and the and the the leader of that person is coaching them properly again, you're going to have phenomenal results as compared to just send them to training. And then when they come back, they just back into the same old grind. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I know, uh, I know a coach, if we all, you know, we all have a couple of soap boxes, mm-hmm. um, and I know coaching is definitely one of yours. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to definitely dive into that a little bit more in depth, uh, in our, our bonus episode. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that but before we wrap up uh, this episode do you do you have anything that that you'd like to say to our listeners anything that you'd encourage them to or something that we didn't cover you know in this time that you were like hey before we leave this conversation about salesman I've got to say this
2: I would say that we, we, you just need to look at sales not as um, not just internally okay um, most people when they look at sales, they're trying to figure out how are we doing it. What we're not doing is we're not saying how are we doing our operations so it improves the life and, and functionality of those that we're actually serving. Um, the, the, a lot of the stuff that's out there right now is geared toward internal efficiency, not the effectiveness of the customer. So how do you get to the point where Uh, You know, let's take, for example, um, I'm going to apply some sort of technology in sales. There's a ton of it out there. There's too much, actually. But, you know, how do you get to the point where you can say, I'm not going to purchase this technology for my sales force unless I know it's going to have this effect on my customer? Rather than saying, it's just going to improve my internal operations, it's going to improve my bottom line. Okay, fine. That's still not helping your customer get to where it is that they want to be. So anytime that you're going to make a purchase or a change to the organization, always think about who it is that you're serving and whether what you're doing here is going to impact positively the people that you're servicing.
0: That is a great word to leave on right there. That is a
1: good word. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for your time and giving us a lot more information about sales enablement training. So just one quick question before we wrap up officially. So someone wanted to kind of segue into sales enablement training Maybe they're a salesman now or, you know, they have interest in sales. What is some advice you would give a person that's kind of looking at this as a career or think they might want to kind of explore that option?
2: The best way to do it is probably to understand what sales enablement is. Okay. So let me do a quick little thing on, on what it is. First of all, enabling sellers is nothing new. If you're an organization, you have an IT group, you're enabling sellers. If you have a marketing group, you're enabling sellers. Every organization enables their sellers. What's changed is those words sales enablement, and the reason why is because sales, and the sales environment has evolved so much. It's become much, much more complex, especially after about the year 2000 when the internet came along and the customers got really educated, okay? so, So the way that I describe sales enablement is this. It's about looking for the friction in an organization that's slowing down sales and mitigating it. At a very top level, lots of people try to define themselves into a whole with sales enablement. That really is it in a nutshell. And the way to describe it within the organization to see if they have an appetite for even challenge, you know, taking this on is we've all seen those rowing skulls that they use in the Olympics and at universities and things. Well, picture in that rowing skull, each one of those crew members is some disparate function in the organization. IT, legal, uh, facilities, L&D, marketing, the C-suite, you name it, they're all in that boat and they all have an oar. Every one of them wants to help get that boat moving, but they're all putting their oars on the water at different time. They're getting their oars crossed. There, everyone has a different power stroke, and they're all facing backwards, not where the boat's going. Okay, so at the back of that boat is what? It's a coxswain, and you know, a navy guy. So I'm going to use these analogies, yeah. right? <laughs> so, so at, at, at the back of the boat is a coxswain, and that coxswain is responsible for looking where everything is going. How everybody is putting their oars in the water, making sure everyone's oar is going on the water at the same time, same power stroke, training them—you um, know—and that coxswain in this in this uh, analogy here is sales enablement. So you have to explain it to an organization like that, see if anybody has the focus to really take on that both strategic and tactical role, because it really is a combination of strategy, politics, change management training it's a it's a whole ball of wax and it's a function within the organization that especially larger
0: organizations need well that might be the title of this episode ball of wax <laughs> ball of wax with bob Britton, aka thor <laughs> well bob thank you for joining us today uh, really really appreciate you not only do we appreciate you i've really enjoyed our time together veronica
1: absolutely thank you bob i enjoyed our time and learning more about skills enablement training so sure mm-hmm.
0: thing you have it awesome For bonus content, click subscribe in your podcast app, plus follow and like us on social media. I'm Trey Talley.
1: And I'm Veronica Reed. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Talent Factor Podcast.